Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter. Today we've come to verse 10 and verse 11. Just two verses will be our focus today. We are reading a book, a letter written by Peter, that really emphasizes the concert of two things, grace and knowledge, growing in our understanding of grace, which is God's uh, favor shown to us sinners through Christ. So grace, very simply, the meditating upon, the recognizing, the living or in light of, the comprehension of the mercy of God to us in Christ. Uh, you only grow in that, however, as you grow in knowledge concerning Christ in all that the Bible has revealed. So you've got to grow in your doctrinal understanding, but at the same time, that's in balance with your growth in grace. And the grace you receive will then also be grace that you manifest to others. That's what the true meaning of gracefulness is, is based on ourselves having received real grace by God. We have to know, though, in order to see grace and peace multiplied in our lives. In fact, uh, whatever else we read, we see in Peter, as we do the whole of Scripture, we see that this grace is based on God's prerogative in Christ. In fact, as we open this letter in the first verses, we emphasize the importance of understanding our standing in Christ. So it's in Christ. It's always back to Christ. Our assurance of salvation is because of Christ. And so we begin this study, and it develops to this point, and verse 10 and verse 11 have to be seen in connection with what has come before. And we left off last week with the verses immediately preceding, talking about the virtues that we can now live out because we are saved. Not to get saved or to become redeemed, but because we're redeemed, we can live out these virtues. And I gave you a picture of an artist with all these colors painting a beautiful picture in response to this rich benefactor who had given them freedom and supplied them all that they have. Similarly, God has redeemed us and given us good works, has given us fruit. In fact, you just heard as we read our confirmation or our affirmation of faith, we read that good works are what? They're fruit of a lively faith, right? Not the same thing as saying they are what earn us salvation. That's not what the confession writers understood Scripture to teach, and they were right on. What they're saying is that good works manifest the fact that we are redeemed. And so the emphasis in these verses, talking about making our calling and election sure, hearken back to this understanding that if God has saved us, he gives us good works. And we should do an analysis about our lives, about what's happening, to then determine and understand to make sure of our calling and our election. Hear God's word. I'll start with verse 8 for context and read to verse 11. Our study today, though, will be on verse 10 and verse 11. Hear God's word. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we need assurance. We thank you for the assurance your word gives. I pray, Lord, for those who are just afflicted right now with doubts, with concerns, wondering. Pray that you would bring comfort to them. Lord, I pray for those who are unduly comfortable, 
They think because they're a member of the church or because of their family or because of some prayer they prayed 15 years ago that they're all right with you. I pray, Lord, for those who are that kind of comfortable that you would afflict them, that they might once again see the need to be clinging to Christ. But Lord, all the while, we recognize the true underlying message of your word that you hold us, that you have saved us, and you will keep us. Lord, I pray that we would live lives in response to what you have done in your great grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do I doubt? That's a question every Christian asks at some point or another. They may not say it out loud. In fact, the longer you've been in the church, the less likely it is that you will say that out loud. Uh, But in your heart, there are times where you doubt. You may be going through some period of emotional instability, and you wonder about your state before God. Am I I truly redeemed? Am I truly saved? Am I truly going to heaven? Is, Is my life truly regenerated? Has it been bought by Christ? Am I really God's child? Many, many Christians, I really believe every Christian at some point has asked that question or questioned personally the surety of their own salvation. Perhaps they've allowed doubt to creep in and are being led by emotions rather than by what they know the Word of God to declare. Could be that sin is the culprit. Sin has taken hold of a part of your life and you believe in the darkness of your sin that there's no way God could ever love me, the sinner that I am. And that sin, allowed to grow and take, take seed and grow and get a foothold in your life, causes you to consistently, almost constantly doubt your salvation. We become ensnared in this way. And then what happens in verse 9, that I read just before the verses of focus today, happens. We forget that we are cleansed from our former sins. And we live in a standing of forgetfulness rather than remembrance and realization that we stand in Christ's righteousness and our life now is an avenue for God to bring glory to himself through the good works he works in our lives. So I want to be very simple in my approach to these two very important verses in the New Testament. By asking a few questions and then seeking the answer to them in Scripture, starting with our text before us. First, I want to ask this question, since assurance is so important, being sure What is assurance and why is it important first? Look at verse 10 as we begin to answer this question. What is assurance and why is it important? Verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. If we were to pick one command that comes out of these verses, we would say the imperative, the command, is to make sure. That's what it says. But be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. So make sure of something. That's another way of saying assurance. Be assured of something. That's what we're talking about today, assurance. And you heard in the affirmation of faith this reference to good works producing assurance. Why? Because it proves that God's working by his spirit in us, and that should give us assurance. It's not saying, let me say up front, it's not saying, if you go do these things, then you can be sure that God will accept you. That's not what we're saying. We're saying that assurance comes when we see God doing good works in your life, giving you desires you would never have on your own naturally. Assurance, what is it exactly? Well, one definition is to be assured of something. That means it's to be convinced it is true. Another way of describing assurance is to put something beyond all doubt. It's not just repeating a positive thinking mantra in your mind. It's knowing somewhat empirically, seeing something that can tell you, I can be sure. In, in this case, the spiritual qualities that have come before, 
I see God working virtue in my life. I see God convicting me of sin towards this direction. It says practice. doesn't say perfect, does it? It says practice these things. It doesn't assume you'll do it all perfectly. But you'll be practicing these things, working to live these things out. That's something God gives you. That then grants us some empirical evidence that God has truly done this work in our life. That's what helps grant assurance. Another definition that comes right out of the Webster's Dictionary, and I love the older Webster's Dictionary for the way it says and speaks of assurance. Listen to what it actually says. The state of being assured, security, being certain in the mind, the Puritan's assurance of salvation. That's what it says in the old Webster's Dictionary. Not that old either, newer than the, the most modern version. It refers to the Puritans and their very doctrine, which is embodied in what we have as a confession of faith, which comes from the scriptures, obviously. So the assurance of our salvation is directly linked. It's even one of the points under the definition for assurance in the Webster's Dictionary. Confidence of mind or manner, freedom from doubt, certainty. Isn't this something all of us seek to have? And we can have this in Christ as we recognize how he gives it. I want to just read you two verses from Paul that should be our verses as well that I think illustrate assurance. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now why is this so powerful? He's saying, I am convinced, the apostles saying. We already know from Peter that we have the same faith as the apostles. I am convinced. He didn't say, you know, I'm pretty sure. Let's say that. He says, I am convinced. That's an assurance. It's not presumption. It's assurance because it's based on who? Christ. That's why we have, you have no other assurance, my brothers and sisters, except for Christ. If your assurance is in your ability to obey, you have no assurance, no real assurance. But if your assurance is in the finished work of Christ and God's now manifesting that through your life, that grants real assurance. That's what we're talking about when we speak of making something sure, Assurance. Later, Paul writes to a pastor, Timothy, and I love these words because he's speaking and trying to speak in an authoritative tone. Uh, he obviously is inspired by the Holy Spirit who's superintending over this, but the Spirit utilizes the, spirit, uh, the, the personality of the person. And you've got here in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, Paul says, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. I'm assured, is what Paul says. Assurance is clearly possible. It's clearly possible. I would even say it's intended. In the book of Hebrews, two verses that come right after some of the most tragic verses in the whole Bible, the tragedy of breaking covenant, as people in the visible body of of believers leave that body and show themselves to be covenant breakers. In verse 11 of Hebrews 6, listen to what is said. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, speaking of Christ. So assurance is always related to Christ, and assurance is always bolstered when we see the work of Christ or obedience happen in our lives. So the relationship between obedience... And assurance is that for us to be obedient at any level, any level if we're honest, is God's work in us. That should give you assurance. If something has happened this week where you know in the old man or in the flesh or in your natural sinful being, you would have done something else. And God convicted you of something. That's the Spirit of God working you. That should assure you of his work in your life. And if you're resisting him, 
you can be assured that your father will make you miserable until you come to him in a way that manifests humility and shows that you need a savior and it's not your works that will save you. But assurance always comes from obedience. One other author said, assurance is the realization of what we have in Christ, such as eternal life, forgiveness of sin, and being the object of God's personal care as his children. Assurance has to do with our comprehension of the facts and provisions of salvation through faith in Christ. So that's what assurance is. Why is it important? You know, there are many examples of incredible stories told when they build these huge buildings. I remember the Hoover Dam. If you ever heard the story of how many people died just building it? The Sears Tower, when I went to Chicago, I remember seeing how they built it and several people dying while building these buildings that we just look at now. I've been praying the whole time during this sanctuary build. It's not anything like those structures, but it's awful high up there that these guys would stay safe while they're working. There's a great story, a great book written about the building of the Golden Gate Bridge, how long it is, and so forth. Well, an interesting study did on two levels, one the human side and then also the level of how long it took to do this project. Well, the first half of the project was going way slower than they had imagined. It was way behind budget, way behind schedule. And during that time, 23 men fell to their death. So the second half of the project, and they were already way behind, they built, they took a whole month to build nets underneath this. And after they built the nets, 10 people still fell, but none of them died because they fell into the nets. Do you know that after that time, they doubled their work pace? In fact, they say that 25% more work total was accomplished after the net was installed. And I think you can all understand why. You know, why is assurance important? It It just makes you live the way God's designed you to live without being scared all the time. I mean, you can actually do great things for God by his grace because you're not worried about just being lost. You're not tight all the time, but you're kind of, you're free in a sense to live unto God. This is why assurance, very simply put, is so important. Let me put it to you this way. There are people who are genuinely Christians, bound for heaven, yet they live in total insecurity. And this then affects the way they live and bear witness to Christ. Generally, a poor understanding of Scripture is the blame for this. And I remember knowing a woman who had been a pastor's wife for 50 years. Her husband taught essentially the gospel his whole life Yet they both struggled to the end to know whether they truly were saved. John Wesley, to the end of his life, was not convinced of his own personal salvation. All the hymns he wrote, all the sermons he preached. Why is this that he'd be so uh, wondering so about his assurance? Well, it has to be related to the knowledge part of growing in grace and knowledge. There are also people who are not genuinely Christians, yet, and they're not bound for heaven, yet they have been convinced because of a prayer they prayed perhaps or a family membership or their membership in a particular church that they're all right with God just on that basis. Their lives look like everyone else's in the world except that they have a few religious rites plugged into their week. I think this text and of course the scriptures in general speak to both people. You see, I think it's true that God's word is intended to bring comfort to those who are his and are afflicted in their being over it. And I think it's also meant without doubt, to bring affliction to the comfortable, to change their lives, to be dependent upon Christ, to truly come to Christ. Hear these words in that light that we are studying today. I know for me personally, I can share with you that in around 1985, I don't remember specifics of when I first came to trust Christ as my own personal Savior and Lord, but I do remember uh, constantly being afflicted in my spirit about whether I really was a Christian. And I was a teenager at a summer camp 
And I remember the pastor talking about this question. Now, I sat in a room. I remember the corner classroom, and we sat there, and I had 30 other young people around me who had all were pretty well, had gone to church most of their life. They all knew their Bibles way better than I ever even imagined to know it. And so I remember sitting there wanting to fit in with them, but they were really churchy, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they just said the right things, and they had Bible drills, and they got it right away. And I just wasn't one of those kids. And I remember just being worried about my own personal salvation. I knew I trusted in Christ, but I didn't know his word very well, and I, I was sure that I wasn't living the, the way I should, and all this crept into my thoughts, but I, I could tell you that I definitely believed in Jesus and trusted in him, and the pastor started talking about this very thing, and I thought he was just talking to me. And he said, you know, when I was a young boy, I doubted my salvation over and over, and I called into the radio, and there's this pastor in the radio, and I, I just shared this, this man for five minutes all the things that I just said to you, he said similarly to this man. At the end of it, the man said, relax. No one, no one who is not born of the Spirit cares about that. So I want to tell you that I'm not going to come away from here telling you, you got to do all this stuff or you're not going to go to heaven. What I'm coming away to tell you is that that conviction, that concern you have, that should be assurance because the Spirit of God does it. You would not care. People will, there will not be one person in hell, one person in hell, who sits there thinking, if I only had a chance to believe in God. No, they'll shake their fist at God. That, that, that's what they desire to do. That's what natural man does. We all would do it, except for the grace of God. And that's the assurance that comes, that you have conviction today, you know something's not right. Well, take that as God working in your life, and I would say to you that that is a good indication that he has, in fact, brought you to himself Assurance. That's why it's important, you can see. But what are we to be assured of? That's the second question I would pose. What are we to be assured of? We say salvation very simply, but the scripture is more technical than that. Therefore, brothers, in verse 10, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Calling and election. This construct that we might call salvation generally. Uh, we have to recognize there's something more specific meant here, and as we come to know, that is the knowledge part, we'll grow in grace as well as we, re re as we see what God is communicating to us. Now, please notice that Peter is describing the experience one has in, in experiencing salvation. In other words, we know from the whole reading of Scripture that election precedes calling. But for you and I who come to faith in Christ, calling is what we know. That's what we sent, the calling of God. Then after we've been called, we're in Christ, we look at it, we say, we recognize what election is. We understand what that means, God's choice in saving us. Now, let's consider these two words, though, so we understand them. If we are to be sure of them, we have to know what they mean. First, our calling, and second, our election. First, our calling. Uh, our catechism says very well, effectual calling. It's called effectual calling. And, and by the way, there's a difference between effectual calling and just regular calling. Calling has to do with calling out and people may or may not respond. Your mom calling to you for dinner time, and you could come, or you may be delayed, or you might not come at all, uh, but that's general calling. Effectual calling is any calling God does, because when he calls, you come. Uh, that's, that's, that's what makes him God. Uh, you don't resist his call. You, he brings you, and that's why the, the shorter catechism answers so wonderfully and so scripturally. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills. He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So calling is a reference to that divine calling by the Spirit that by the combination of his word and conviction upon the sinner makes us trust Christ, unites us together with Christ. That's what we're talking about. 
Francis Turretin, one of the great theologians of the past, said, This calling is an act of the grace of God in Christ, by which he calls men and women dead in sin and lost in sin. Adam, through the, pre- uh, through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, to union with Christ and to the salvation obtained in him. So first part, to be sure of, is of our calling, of our being in Christ. In connection with that and further building our assurance is the second point, election. When you grow diligent in making sure of your election, in connection with calling, election is this. It's also called sovereign grace. It's really the only true understanding of grace. We use grace haphazardly. Let's say grace or it's grace, but then when we follow it up by saying the things we do. That's not grace. Grace is sovereign in that God does it. That's what makes it grace. That's what makes what we preach the doctrines of grace. They're by sovereign God, his sovereign act. So election is an act of a sovereign God choosing to show special favor to a person or a group of people. We most often think of election in terms of individual specific choosing of a person, but God has other forms of election that are there present in Scripture. It's clear, and I'll show you in a moment. But in particular, the question that we're to ask ourselves is, personally, have I been called, have I been regenerated, have I been born again, and then in that light... Am I one of God's chosen? And how do I know that? It's in relationship to what he does in your life and manifests through your life, the fruits he produces through your life. It's a worthy question. But as you study both calling and election, you become more and more dependent on the sovereignty of God and all the more secure in that. See, if you're secure an election based on the idea that you chose God, honestly, for a moment, how secure are you? That's no security at all. But if God does it, Now that transfers the meaning altogether. One time Spurgeon was preaching in a Methodist church that did not hold to this view of election. They believed that God elected based on what he saw people to do. He looked down the quarters of time and thought they would choose him, and so they elected him. And so Spurgeon held what I think the scripture holds, and no God, by the good pleasure of his own will, places his hand of election upon those he chooses in order to bring glory to himself. And Spurgeon's preaching away, not on this particular subject, But then he comes to the end of the sermon, and he knows he's about to cover election. And he says, now what I'm going to give you is is known as high doctrine. And I know a lot of you won't like it. And some people literally said they wouldn't because they knew it was coming to. They were friendly with him, but they were still a little nervous of him in the pulpit. And he said, but listen to me before I say it. I want to ask you the question, why can I preach the gospel? And that person there comes to Christ, and that person doesn't. What's the difference? Do you think it's God that's the difference? And they raise their hand, yes, it's God. Then you believe in election. You're saying God is the difference. Well, if God's truly the difference, it doesn't just start in that seat. It has to go back to what made that person choose. You're really not that opposed to it when you start to think. If you say God is the difference and not the person, start doing your logical connections backwards now. Where does that person come to that place? Can't be in themselves. It has to come up out of eternity from God himself. This is an important part of understanding assurance and coming to be assured, appreciating, recognizing the doctrine of election. Now, Calvin was a a pastor before he was known as a theologian as such, and there really wasn't a dichotomy between the two in his day. Listen to what he says as he recognizes people kind of get bristled up when they hear this at first because it's an affront to their personal individual autonomy. Listen to what he says and how it connects to assurance. I think you'll find this helpful. Calvin said, I would in the first place entreat my readers carefully to bear in memory the admonition which I now offer. 
that this great subject, he's talking about election, is not, as many imagine, a mere thorny and noisy disputation, nor a speculation which wearies the minds of men without any profit. He recognized it even in his day, what people would say about it. He says, but it's a solid discussion, eminently adapted to the service of the godly. Because it builds us up soundly in the faith, trains us to humility, and lifts us up into the admiration of the unbounded goodness of God toward us, while it elevates us to praise this goodness in our highest strains. For there is not a more effectual means of building up faith than the giving our open ears to the election of God. No better way. Any other method, any other formula means you still got some of you there, and God gets that much less glory. So election, being sure of it, is so important. God in Scripture gives different kinds of election. First of all, there's corporate election. I want you to think about what I mean. Deuteronomy 7 describes this. For you are a holy people to the Lord God, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special tre- treasure above all the peoples in the face of the earth. He's talking to who? Israel, the church in the Old Testament. He says similarly in the New Testament to the church now, with Gentiles included. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the church again. This is corporate election. This is calling a body of people to bear witness to him. Now, this does not mean the same thing as every individual in that group being individually elect, right? I mean, we know Israel, not everybody in Israel is saved, right? Is everybody sitting in the church today saved? We don't know in particular who individually is elect, but we know that God has corporately placed his hand upon the church, and it's the normal way he brings his personally, particularly elect through and manifests them, but there will still be people within the pale of the church who are not truly elect in the individual sense, and that's the sense I think Peter's talking about individually and what is spoken of in other places in Scripture. Listen to what individual election means. Individual election means, as John 6, 39 says, as Jesus says, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of, that, of all that he had given me, but raise it up on the last day. Then he says in a prayer to the Father in John 17, verse 9, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So God has chosen some, given them to the Son. The Son brings them all the way through by his obedience and gives them to the Father, perfected, the elect. John 18, verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those who you have given, I have not lost one. Romans 8, verse 29, for those, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be the, conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And finally, Acts 13, 48, and these are just some among many. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is the doctrine of individual election, and this is what Peter's saying we should make sure. And how do we make it sure? Well, we make it sure based on evaluating our call, have we been born again, and then based on the fruit that's working in our lives. You know, there are other passages, and this is where it gets blurry sometimes to folks when they talk about this issue. There are other passages that kind of overlap the two kinds of election. It's spoken to the church, but it recognizes that the particulars of it, that is the verse that is written, only speaks to or only is true of those who are genuinely saved or genuinely elect. But we don't know that group except for these means that we're mentioning. And so we live in light of the church. In fact, I look at you, I don't sit and wonder, ever wonder, hmm, I wonder if so-and-so is elect. I think they're elect. Well, maybe they're not elect. It depends. I mean, could they be elect? I don't think in those terms. I think you're the elect of God, the church. 
And the only thing that would make me think otherwise is that if you apostatize, if you rejected, if you outright said, I denounce Christ. But I, I live on a human level seeing the church as God's elect, knowing that in particular, he says in Ephesians 1, speaking to the church, even as, the, as, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, and so on. So I recognize that that verse is speak, spoken to the corporately elect body, but it only personally applies to those who actually have been adopted. How do I know how I'm assured? Well, that's where it comes back to how we are assured of our calling and election. But do recognize also in this verse, in verse 11, that we are to be assured not just of our calling and our election, but also of our eternal life with Christ. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For all the discussion there is about the end times, and it's interesting discussion for sure, we could say this for sure in the scripture. There is an appointed day when Christ will come and, re and re return and judge the world in his righteousness. Those who are united to Christ will go on to everlasting life. Those who are not in union with Christ will go on to everlasting destruction. I didn't say annihilation, I said everlasting destruction. Entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, as the text says it, begins when God gives us new birth, and it goes on forever, forever with the Lord. In fact, it's much more time than any of us are going to live on this earth that we'll be living forever in the Lord. Being assured of our calling and election relates to our lives now, being assured of our eternal life with Christ does relate to our life now for sure, but especially for our lives into the future. So I want to close with this question. How then are we to be assured of our calling and election? Knowing what calling is and election is, hopefully that alone will start to help you grow in your assurance when you recognize the onus is on God to work these things. But you still have to be honest about, well, is it, work? Is it happening in my life? Verse 10, the second part. If you practice these qualities, you will never, never fall. It doesn't mean to say that you've got to perfect these in order to get into heaven. It doesn't say that. It says if you're practicing these things, back to what I said originally, this is such a manifestation of the work of the Spirit in your life that you can't, you're not going to fall if God's working spiritually through you in these qualities that have been mentioned. You're never going to fall in that. That's the way to be sure. It's not saying someone who's not working the qualities will fall. It's saying that you never will, though, if you're doing these things. Okay, follow what it's saying the place of works in giving us assurance. The person who has the Holy Spirit working in their life in a tangible way is not sitting around wondering because they recognize they couldn't do it. Look at the Holy Spirit's doing in my life, how the changes he's making. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection. These are all spiritual qualities. They're Holy Spirit wrought. They can't be done except for God doing them. Natural, unsaved, unregenerate, fallen man cannot exhibit or practice these qualities, Period. If you can truly practice these qualities or see them happening in your life, God convicting you in this end, to this end, that is a sure means of assurance, without doubt. Diligent practice of spiritual qualities, working, and it's painful at times. But this is what should grant real assurance, the ongoing, present work of the Holy Spirit in your life now. John MacArthur said it well when he said this. Genuine assurance comes from seeing the Holy Spirit's transforming work in one's life, not from clinging to the memory of some experience. It's clinging to Jesus now. It's great what happened 15 years ago. We prayed the prayer and went forward. 
But that in itself is not assurance. It's the Holy Spirit's work now in these fruits. But also, the whole of the book and the whole of the scripture teaches us not only the diligent practice of these spiritual qualities, but simply put, by growing in grace and knowledge. A knowledge of God's sovereignty certainly assists in assurance. It's said so well by an author who writes, the sense of security which this doctrine of God's sovereignty and election gives to the struggling saint results from the assurance that he is not committed to, by his own power, or rather weakness, but into the sure hands of all the Almighty Father, that over him is the banner of love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. I want to just ask you now, if you're struggling at all, I hope the struggle itself gives you assurance that God's working. But let me ask you three questions. Number one, do you believe that Jesus is God's Son, and he has paid for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that? If you do, that's a fruit, because you couldn't believe that if it were not for God. That should give you assurance, no matter what you're struggling with today. Do you love the brothers? Do you love the brethren? Do you love God's church? You couldn't and you wouldn't if it weren't for God. I'm not saying do you not sometimes get frustrated with the brethren. I'm saying do you love the brethren? Do you love the church? God's bride in all its foibles. You wouldn't if it weren't for God giving you a love. Do you strive to obey Christ's commands? I didn't ask if you're perfect in it. I didn't ask you because I know you've struggled and I know you've fallen. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, do you strive to obey Christ's commands? Do you want to honor Christ? Because you would not want to honor Christ if it were not for God putting that in your heart to do it. These things should give you great, great assurance, my brothers and sisters, even if you're struggling or even if you're in a time of great, obvious, tangible uh, presence of God in your life and giving you victory and you see it and you understand it, no matter what end of the spectrum you're at, this is a call to give saints who are struggling assurance. And it's a call for those who are assured and they shouldn't be to get shaken up and trust Christ. I conclude with this picture that is vivid to me in the last several months. And many of you travel a lot, so you deal with this on a constant basis. But for me, I'm still not used to the idea of getting a plane ticket and being told that you're not on that flight and that they put you on some other flight and you're all messed up and got to stay there for 10 hours at a time. And, and I don't get that. I think you buy the ticket you should get to go on, right? That's the way it ought to work. And I've had both experiences where I've had a confirmed ticket and I've had a standby ticket. And I don't like the standby ticket at all. I don't like the concept. In fact, if you watch next time you're at the airport, and I've watched this while I was on a confirmed flight, I'm kicked back on my computer playing a game, talking on the phone, maybe even catching some Zs. Well, the guys that are, or the gals that are on standby are doing what? They're pacing furiously in front of that desk, hoping someone else doesn't get in before them, right? And uh, waiting for the next flight to open up. Can I get in on this one? Can I? And they're constantly, constantly agitated, maybe even agitated at the person who's a ticket taker, who has nothing to do with it. Not convinced that they have nothing to do with it. They keep, and the difference is stellar between those two people. The one who does not have a confirmation and the one who does. And I hope you, the children of God, would be like those who are confirmed. It's not that you sleep or do nothing, but that you recognize uh, that you can now live with a certain level of freedom before God because of what he's done and what he's doing in your life. Rather than being always agitated, always moving, always shuffling around, wondering, am I going to get on? That's not God's will for us in Christ Jesus. But at the same time, it's not his will for us that we would just say, well, I trusted Jesus way back in the, in the concert, you know, 13 years ago, and that's it. That's my base. I haven't done anything since. Because that's not what God will do when he saves someone. When he saves someone, he'll give them fruit. So check the fruit out. That's what the real call is. As you grow in grace and knowledge, you become more and more aware of God's secure love for you in Christ. Knowledge of God's love for you in Christ will produce obedience 
and then obedience will produce more and more assurance because you'll know it's not something you could do. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this text that calls us to make our calling and election sure, and I pray that whatever the case may be, our security, our assurance comes from Christ, in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we would be a people freed now in light of who we are to honestly and openly evaluate our sins and bring them before you, recognizing that the fact that you would convict us of sin shows us we're your children. But Lord, help us not just to stop there, but to see you do a work in our life that changes us even more, more and more each day, that we might bring glory, great glory, to the Savior who has bought us with the high price of his own blood. Lord, I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.